Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Good day, everyone. Good morning to you. Pleasure to be back with you again. I'm grateful for uh, Dan filling in for me last week um, as well. My mom is still sick, as, uh, as you know. We're moving her to hospice. Well, she is in hospice care. We're moving her to um, her home tomorrow, um, which is where she wants to be. So that's that. Good day. Did I say that already? We are going to uh, look at Matthew chapter 12. So you can please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. We are in the middle of the chapter. And as a matter of fact, we're, we're really in the middle of a paragraph even. Um, we spent some time at the conclusion of, our, of the last time we were together, I was with you, looking at this idea of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And, and because we spent as much time as we did on that, we didn't really get to unpack the rest of the verses in that paragraph. And so today what I want to do is I want to go back, look at this idea of the blasphemy against the Spirit, and, uh, and then move on uh, from there. But, but let me remind you, as even if you're still turning to Matthew 12, Jesus is in the middle of a series of confrontations. Um, The confrontations didn't all necessarily occur on the same day, but Matthew lumps them together. And remember, as Matthew, he doesn't always write chronologically. Matthew is trying to teach certain ideas, and so he'll bring certain stories in at certain times. And, And so we saw that he had this confrontation, which began, at least in Matthew's giving it to us, it begins with, his disciples, Jesus and his disciples walking through the fields and beginning to pluck some of the grain. And they say, you can't do that. It's the, it's the Sabbath. Uh, you're not allowed to do that. That's harvesting. That's um, threshing and all of that stuff. And so they give Jesus a hard time. And Jesus, he responds to that because really what Jesus and his disciples are doing, they're not violating the law of the Sabbath. They're violating the rules of the religious leaders. And so Jesus calls them out, and in verse 7 of the chapter, he says, If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. He said, you've missed the heart of God in this whole process. And so, no, I'm not going to tell them to stop doing what they're doing. As a matter of fact, I don't know if he did this, but he grabbed some for himself, and he he took it. That's my bad attitude. That's probably what I would do. But I don't know if he did that. But then we see it says that on another Sabbath day, Matthew lumps it all together, that Jesus goes into a synagogue. And again, I described the synagogue to you. It wouldn't be a setting like this. Rather, in that day, the synagogue would have been two or three tiers of seating that would kind of run around, and the whole middle of the section would be open. And so Jesus there, as, he is, as he's attending synagogue, the opportunity was given to him to come and to share some things. And so here you have a fellow with a withered hand, a hand that had become withered. Something happened in this guy's life, and Jesus invites the guy right down in the middle of everyone in this opening that is there, and it says that the religious leaders are watching him intently to see if he would heal them. They're going to get Jesus in trouble by a good deed that he's going to do because the good deed was done on the Sabbath. And Jesus, he calls them out. In verses 11 and 12, he called out their hypocrisy, And he said, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So he calls them out for their hypocrisy. They're willing to do a good deed if it means some money for them, but not just a general good deed for this guy that is hurting. And so Jesus calls them out. And now, as far as the Pharisees are concerned, that's it. We're done with this Jesus guy. 
He had gone too far. We had tried every other campaign we could against him. We had bad-mouthed him. We had gone to his community. It seems they even went to his family and said, look, your son's going to get himself into trouble. Your brother's going to get himself into trouble, and he's crazy. You've got to come and stop him. They tried everything they could. They threatened other people. If you follow this Jesus, you're going to be put out of the synagogue. You follow this Jesus, you're going to face the consequences of it. And Jesus didn't stop, and he just kept doing what he was sent here to do. And so now he had gone too far and bucked the system just one too many times, and so now he had to go. And we see in the verse there, in verse 14, which we looked at, their conclusion is the only solution is to destroy Jesus. And so they're going to kill him. And that pretty much brings us to where we left off. And so last week, or two weeks ago, Jesus was healing, as it says, a demon-depressed man that was brought to him. And again, this demon-oppressed man was blind and he was mute as a result of the demon oppression. And so when Jesus heals them, they're amazed because, again, you couldn't heal a person that was mute, they thought, and yet Jesus does so. And the crowd is amazed, but it's sadly we see that the religious leaders, rather than being amazed by the work that Jesus had just done, they were further hardened. And they begin to accuse Jesus of doing this through the power of the devil himself, healing this man by the power of Satan, Satan casting out Satan. It's a silly concept, and Jesus calls them out for it, because why would Satan cast out Satan? Why would Satan divide his own kingdom in this particular way? And the answer is he wouldn't. And again, I appreciate what F.F. F. Bruce said. He said, Satan may be wicked, but he is no fool. Or as Mr. T said, he ain't no fool, or something like that. <laughs> he may be wicked, but he's not a fool. And so Jesus calls them out for their foolishness, and he does so by launching into a word picture. And this is what we didn't have time to really unpack. So look at verse 29. It says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now the strong man that Jesus is referring there to would be Satan. And Jesus is not working with the strong man. He's not working with Satan, but he's coming against Satan. Again, he's not in concert with Satan, but he's in direct opposition to him. And through this little word picture, Jesus points that out. Now, I do think it's important for us to note, before we move on, of the fact that those that of us that now believe, despite the fact that we were once under the dominion of Satan, I'm not saying we were all demon-oppressed or demon-possessed or anything like that, but just using the word picture, despite the fact that we were once under the dominion of the devil, Jesus has entered in and bound the devil. And as you see there, notice it says he plunders his goods in verse 29 there. What that means is if you're a believer, that there's no area of your life that needs to remain under the dominion of Satan. Speaking in another place, Jesus said these words, John 8, 36, he said, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Which means nobody that names the name of Christ needs to settle in with those sins or those tendencies that perhaps previously defined them. And that's very good news. Pre-Christ, you may have been given over to lust. You don't have to be any longer. Pre-Christ, you may have been controlled by your anger. You don't have to be any longer. Pre-Christ, you may have been consumed with self, which is what many of us as Americans are, as just suburban teenagers growing up. That's what we are, consumed with self. But you don't need to any longer because Jesus has set you free from every area that was previously under the dominion 
of the devil. And that's very good news. And again, the words, if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. May I just exhort you today, walk in that freedom. Because the strongman has been bound and the Lord has plundered you, your house and your goods, your life, essentially. And that's great news. Now, Jesus continues in verse 30 and he says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scattered, scatters. And I believe those are important words because, as it's been said, there are no Switzerlands in relationship to Christ. You know, Switzerland, neutral in all matters, international. Well, there are no Switzerlands in relationship to Christ. Jesus is saying you are either for me or you are against me. And that there is no place for neutrality as far as a response to Christ is concerned. And yet many people seek to be neutral in response to Christ. Jesus either is God's Messiah or he isn't God's Messiah. Jesus either is God's plan of salvation or he isn't the plan of salvation. Jesus either died for your sins or he didn't. And this idea that Jesus was a kind moral teacher or that Jesus was a good prophet but not God, which is what he claimed to be, is not a viable option because he claimed to be God. And if he claims to be God but isn't, he's either a liar, as C.S. Lewis pointed out, who is bent on deceiving others, and therefore he's anything but good or moral. He would therefore either be a liar or a crazy person that has deceived himself, and sadly one we should look on not with reverence but with pity, or is exactly who he said that he was. God in the flesh come to take away man's sins. But there's no place for neutrality when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. And so he says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so may I say, if you've never done so, this morning you need to do business with God. And you need to determine who is this Jesus and who is it that he claims to be. If for a period of time you felt, you know what, I'll just go and I'll glean sort of the good things that he has to offer, and I'll just sort of tuck them into my life. You can't do that. You can't do that any longer. You need to do business with God. And you need to determine, is Jesus who he says that he is? God in the flesh come to take away your sins. Now, Jesus continues. Think about that for a moment, will you? Turn to your neighbor and say, huh, how about that? <laughs> Jesus, he continues, and now he's going to provide examples of people that are doing exactly what he just talked about. He's out there planting, and they're coming around, and they're scattering. And so in verse 30, he references the religious leaders. Now, the religious leaders had convinced themselves that they were doing God's will. But the reality we see is they were in direct opposition to God's work. We saw last week they were even attributing the work of Jesus to the devil himself. And Jesus labels that accusation he calls that in verses 31 and 32, the blasphemy against the spirit. He says in those verses that such sin is unpardonable, unforgivable. And we spent a, quite a bit of time looking at the blasphemy against the spirit the last time we were together. So you can go back and you can look at that study. But I, I'll just say this. If you weren't with us, you don't want to do the blasphemy of the spirit. All right, so tuck that away and go back and look at that particular passage. But he calls these guys that thought they were doing the work of God 
He says that they're committing the blasphemy of the spirit. Verse 33, he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. Now the fruit on the outside is proof of what's going on on the inside. And for men and women, that would be our heart. And as we saw in our last study, the Pharisees, the other religious leaders, they had allowed their hearts to become calloused or to become hardened over. And the fruit of that condition is now being made manifest in the types of accusations that they are making. Proverbs chapter 4 tells us that we are to keep our hearts with all vigilance. Some versions say that we are to guard our hearts. What's really going on down deep in these Pharisees, in their hearts, is now manifesting itself in their actions. They have just accused God's Messiah himself of being empowered by Satan to do the work that he is doing. But what's really coming out now in their words and in their actions is what's going on down deep. And I wonder if you've ever noticed that in your life. I'm not talking about claiming Jesus is of the devil, but the what's going on down deep coming out in your lives. Have you ever noticed that uh, in your lives? Some of you, thank you. I appreciate you. But you find yourself, you begin snapping at other people. You notice you're maybe a bit more sarcastic or a bit more cutting or a bit more negative, nothing's right. You find yourselves being a little less merciful or less willing to forgive. Well, all of those are indicators that reveal that we have a heart problem at the root of things. Now, our solution many times is exactly what the Pharisees are doing in this instance here, is we begin working on the root. And so we do, or excuse me, on the fruit. We begin to work on the sarcasm and say, well, I'm not gonna be sarcastic anymore, but we really wanna be. And man, I had a zinger, and I should have just given it to him or whatever. But we hold our tongue, and we think we're good. We begin working on the fruit, but it's all there. And you know what I found in my life is I can control it for like a day or so, or a week maybe, or if I went on a retreat and I'm real fired up, maybe two, three weeks coming out of it. But eventually, all that stuff that desperately wants to come out, it does come out. And so the solution is not to control the fruit, but it's to control the root. Does that make sense? And so we see here where we often look to make fruit changes. Jesus' solution is root changes. So look at verse 33. He says, again, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. The fruit is just an outward indicator of of what's going on down deep. And a few verses earlier, back in verse 25, Jesus said, referring to these uh, Pharisees, It says that he knew their thoughts. He knew what was going on in their heart. And so it's no wonder that they are now doing the things that they are doing and saying the things that they're saying because that's really what's going on in them. The fruit is simply bearing fruit. The root is simply bearing fruit. And so what we need to learn in our lives is this. We will never really be reformed unless our hearts are first transformed. And that comes through a relationship with Christ. And I'm not talking about just, you know, yeah, well, I I began believing when I was 16 years old. I began a relationship with Jesus. That's the starting point, certainly. But it's a process that has to continue to be ongoing in our walk with the Lord. Recently, you guys know, and I don't like to bring all these kinds of things up, but I'm just giving you an example. My mom, she got sick. She was rushed to the hospital. They did the surgery. Didn't think she'd make it out of it. She made it out of it. A lot of time there at the hospital. Spent a lot of time there. Was kind of out of my normal routine. Normally, I get up. I spend time in the Word. I spend time praying, talk to my family, and and 
kind of, I don't want to use this term, it's kind of a new agey term, but sort of just center myself, kind of, I'm where I need to be with the Lord, and then I go about and do my things, but life was different, and I'm kind of running all around. So anyway, one particular day, I'm, I'm getting out into my car, going out to the parking lot, driving out of the hospital, going to pick up my kids, get on 95, and all of that, and of course, in the parking lot, there's somebody that bothered me, and I'm like, you know, you know, and, you know, you, you just kind of that. And then, you know, you get up to the light, and the light's circling too long. I can't believe this light. And then somebody, you know, they don't know how to drive. You know how you're supposed to drive? And I'm, my son Jake and I, we're driving together, and, like, you got to play the game. you got to merge. You know, you don't have to hit your brake. You just got to slow down, and you can get right in there. You know, but everybody's got to play the game. You know, and some people, they just don't know how to drive. And, oh, you, you idiot, you don't know how to drive. What I noticed about myself was it was just all kind of coming out. You know what I mean? And, and sort of after like the third time of calling someone an idiot in, in like half a mile, it was just sort of like, it was just sort of like, you know what, Lord, I've drifted from you. And so the heart wasn't where it needed to be. And so I've been a believer for a long time. It's not like I need to become a believer. I am a believer. But we need to make sure that our hearts are in the right places. And that comes from that growing, thriving, intimate relationship with Christ. And that's something, if you will, that's been missing because I wasn't taking the time as I typically do to do that. And so again, often we become fixated on the fruit, but the solution is to work on the root. And so we allow Christ to minister to that root, fix the root, our heart. And Jesus continues, verse 34, he says, you brood of vipers, those are seeker sensitive words. He says, uh, how, can you, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance, he called him evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. The evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. Now, a brood is a family of something. Often we refer to a family of snakes or vipers. And so Jesus calls these guys, you're you're a family of vipers. You're a family of snakes. Now, even in our day, you don't want to be called a snake. If somebody calls you a snake, it's not a compliment typically. Um, you don't want to call other people a snake. Jesus, uh, Satan, you know, manifests himself in the garden as a serpent or as a snake. So it's not a good thing to be called a brood of vipers. And so here are these people, and I find this interesting. If you would have asked people in that society, who are the most moral upstanding people of society? they would say, well, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And yet Jesus calls them a family of snakes, a brood of vipers. They may have had the appearance of holiness and righteousness, but at their heart they were nothing more than poisonous snakes. And thus it's no wonder that out of their mouth are coming the words and the things that are coming out of their mouth. And notice also this, Jesus says in in those verses, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. The good person. I th- we want to be careful with this because this phrase, a good person, is a phrase we often throw around. So-and-so was such a good person or he or she has such a good heart. The reality is, no, they don't. None of us do. None of us are good people. None of us have good hearts. Jeremiah tells us that each one of our hearts is desperately wicked as it says in Jeremiah 17.9. I like the way the NIV translates it. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things, and it is beyond cure. And yet so often what we try to do is cure the heart. Religious systems are built on this notion of reforming the human heart. But it never works. 
The solution is not in, cu- in curing the human heart, but it's in replacing the human heart. And that is why the Lord, speaking through another prophet, says this. He said, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So if you're here today and you're trying to reform yourself, respectfully, may I say, would you stop it? Because we are not a self-help organization. We're not a bunch of people that are trying to reform our desperately sick hearts. We are a people that have come to learn that our hearts are incurable and thus they need to be replaced. And reformation comes as we undergo a heart transplant. That's what it means to become a follower of Christ. It's an exchanging of our unrighteousness for his righteousness. And if you've never done that, as we close today, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do so. But in the meantime, you can be considering that. We continue. Look at verse 36. He says, Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Certainly, these are sobering words for us to consider, and I think they should give us pause before we open our mouths to speak, or may I add, before we open our social media account to post. Every word that we speak, we will have to give account for. And the Bible says a lot about taking care with our words. Paul wrote this, Ephesians 4, He said, let no corrupting talk, underline the word no, in your mind, I guess, because it's up there. I don't know how you're going to do it. But it says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those that hear. Paul said in another place, he said, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. The book of Proverbs, just about every chapter addresses the tongue. Proverbs 18.21 is an example. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Proverbs 12, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrust, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 21, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. The Bible says a lot about our tongues and the words that come out of our mouth. And so certainly Jesus' words here should serve as a reminder to us to take care with the words that we speak. And I'd encourage you to do that. But that being said, I don't think that's the primary point of why Jesus said what he said in this particular verse. The context, it seems to make clear that his primary purpose in saying these words is to demonstrate that that a tree is known by its fruit that a person's heart is revealed by their words and by their actions, and by that judgment will be meted out. And so he says, every careless word will be judged. We continue, look at 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees, they answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. You know, and I I jotted down, change the subject much, do we? You know, because they totally go a different direction. They said, well, we need to see a sign. Rather than dealing with what Jesus had just challenged them with, they instead call for a sign from him to verify who he is. So as if casting out demons wasn't sign enough, as if restoring the ability to the paralytic to walk wasn't sign enough, as if raising the dead back to life wasn't sign enough, they say, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Some of your versions, you may see it there, 
instead of saying wish to see a sign, it says we demand a sign from you. We insist that you show us a sign, as if a sign would have done anything anyway. Again, they've already witnessed scores of other miracles, and yet they were not moved. And so what really makes one think that they would be moved by another sign? And rather than immediately giving them a sign, Jesus instead gives them a lengthy answer. And he references the Old Testament characters of Jonah and the Queen of Sheba. And starting in verse 39, we read this. He said, and he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, the great fish, it says, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, second example, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Let's unpack that. Jesus says the only sign that he was going to give to this evil and adulterous generation would be the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, if you're not familiar with the account, Jonah was an Old Testament prophet. He preached about 750 years before the time of Christ on the earth, physical appearance of Christ on the earth. He's a prophet of God, and as a prophet of God, he was sent to go and proclaim coming judgment against the people of Nineveh, basically the largest city of the world, of the most powerful empire of the world. And there's a book in the Old Testament, it's called the book of Jonah, and it'll take you about 10, 15 minutes to work your way through the book if you've never read it. And so he's sent to speak to these people. And preaching to the people of Nineveh was the last thing that Jonah wanted to do. And in his book actually tells us why he had no desire to do so. It says in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, It said, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's where God had called him. He said, is this not what I said? I knew, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Why did Jonah not want to go and preach to the people of Nineveh? Because he knew that God would move their hearts and they would repent and he would forgive them. And Jonah didn't want to see those people forgiven. They were a a wicked, evil people. And Jonah felt in his mind they don't deserve mercy and they don't deserve forgiveness. I'll tell them lightning bolts are coming, but only if lightning bolts are coming. And Jonah knew that God would forgive them, and so he didn't want to go and preach to him. He was so against uh, going knowing that God would forgive them, that the passage says he got in a ship and he went to the furthest possible uh, known place away from where Nineveh was. He wanted to go as far away as possible from this wicked and cruel people. Barbaric people is really what they were. And so as the book reveals, he gets up and he goes to the opposite direction. He gets on a ship and he begins to sail away and a, a great storm Uh, arises so much so that everybody on the boat begins, all these experienced fishermen, uh, whatever they are, shipmen, people, they begin to freak out about this whole thing. The captain finally says to to the people, hey, everyone, start praying to your God. Whatever your God is or whoever he is, let's just play our, you know, be safe rather than sorry. Everybody just start praying. 
And as he's making his way around the boat, he finds Jonah, and Jonah's sleeping somewhere. He says, what's the matter with you? Get up and pray to your God. And Jonah says, well, you know, I don't want to say it, but I don't need to pray to my God because this is all my fault. You know, God told me to go to this place. I didn't go to that place, and all of this is my fault. You want to solve the problem, you need to separate yourself from me. Throw me off of the boat. You guys will all be safe, and I'll die. And they're like, we're not going to throw you off the boat. Just And finally, they're like, you know what? Come here. <laughs> and they throw, they throw him off the boat. Well, the story doesn't end there. As a matter of fact, the story's just getting started. Jonah is swallowed, as the scripture says, by a great fish, of which he lives inside of that great fish for three days. Verse 17 of the chapter says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That's what Jesus is referencing in verse 40 of our passage this morning. Again, the verse says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights uh, in the heart of the earth. So the people are demanding a sign to prove the authenticity that Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus says, the only sign that I will give you is my resurrection. You're going to crucify me, I'll be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, and then I'm going to come forth again. That'll be the sign of the authenticity. And I find it interesting how often critics seek to disprove the resurrection as vigorously as they do, because the, the resurrection is the proof that God accepted the sacrifice of our son Jesus, uh, of his son Jesus on the cross. You know, I find it very sad, and I bring this up a lot of times at Easter, that even those that name the name of Christ minimize the importance of the resurrection, saying, eh, it may or may not have happened, but it's not really important. What's important is Jesus and what he said and all these things. The resurrection is important, and Jesus points to it as the sign of the authenticity of his claims to be the Messiah. Now, there are some that criticize the Bible for the statement that Jesus makes here. Certainly, they think it's foolish this idea of Jonah in the belly of a whale, they think that's foolish. But God can do whatever he wants to do. And so he sustained Jonah even in the midst of that. But others criticize Jesus here because Jesus says that he will be in the heart of the earth, the idea of being buried for three days and three nights. The reality we know is this, is the New Testament writers clearly demonstrate that Jesus was in the grave less time than three days or three nights. And so he's crucified on Friday afternoon, goes into the grave, he's buried just before Friday evening, and then he's raised Sunday morning. So he's in the grave Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night, and Sunday morning. That's not three days or three nights, that's two days and two nights. And so people say, see, here's the mistake. The Bible doesn't know what it's talking about, and so on. But the apparent discrepancy is solved when we realize that for the Hebrew people, they considered any part of a day as the whole day. So then being in there for any part of a Friday and any part of a Sunday was considered being in there for all of Friday and all of Sunday. Thus Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, three days and three nights. If Jesus said the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth five days or something like that, then we'd have a problem here. But the way that the Hebrew people considered this, it's exactly what happened. Our point to remember is this. The religious leaders are demanding a sign. They're implying that they will believe if a sign is given to them, and sadly, we discover that they don't. You may recall when the guards that had been standing watch 
at the tomb of Jesus, when they went to the religious leaders to tell them that his, he was no longer there, the stone had been rolled away, the angels, his body is gone, you recall the response of the religious leaders was to bribe those guards to cover it up. It says this in Matthew 28. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the ears of the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Show us a sign and we'll believe. The only sign I'll give you is I'll rise from the dead. Hey, Jesus rose from the dead. We refuse to believe it. You see, because their hearts were hardened over. Their demand for a sign and then their failure to respond is just more conclusive proof of the hardness of their heart. And Jesus says to them, the men of Nineveh, they repented when Jonah came to them preaching about a coming judgment. And in a figurative sense, they're going to rise up and condemn those that are, despite the evidence, rejecting Christ, these religious leaders. Jesus gives another example. This is the queen of the south, which it says there in verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Here in the New Testament, she's referred to as the queen of the south. In the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, she's referred to as the queen of Sheba, same person that we're talking about. According to 1 Kings chapter 10, she traveled from her country, which was, we don't know exactly, but somewhere in eastern or central Africa, south of Israel. She traveled all the way that long distance from there because the rumors of Solomon and the glory of this man and his kingdom had become known to her. And so she wanted to come see the splendor of his kingdom and hear the wisdom of this king. And her trip causes her to conclude this. This is from 1 Kings 10. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, she says, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Now, we like to think that seeing is believing, but the reality is that there are plenty of examples of people that do see and don't believe. And the religious leaders are example of those that because of the hardness of their hearts, they refuse to believe. And the people of Nineveh and the Queen of Sheba will just be some of those that stand in judgment of their unwillingness to believe despite the evidence that was right in front of them. And so Jesus points to them as examples. Now he continues in verse 43. He says, when the unclean spirit had, has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and it brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Now, just a few verses earlier, Jesus had delivered a man with demon oppression. That's what started this whole discussion about whether he was empowered by Satan or not. And with that being in the immediate context, I think we might be tempted to conclude that in these verses that I just read, 43 to 45, that Jesus is somehow explaining 
the principles of demonic deliverance or something like that. I don't believe that that is the point that Jesus is trying to make. I think rather Jesus is using a parable to describe the condition of the nation of Israel. And the religious leaders represent the nation of Israel. So the person that is possessed in verses 43 to 45 in the, in the story, the parable that he's given, they would represent the nation of Israel. The unclean spirit inhabiting that man, if you will, was the evil or the propensity of the nation toward sin, toward idolatry and other things like that, ultimately toward the rejection of God's will and God's ways. And the swept clean house now, if you will, represents the spiritual vacuum that the nation has been plunged into. So you remember that they embraced idolatry with full gusto and God delivered them into the Babylonian captivity and after a period of about 70 years or so, they returned from that captivity. They never returned to their idolatry. So it was swept clean, if you will. But there was a spiritual vacuum and they never opened their hearts to the Lord as a nation as well. So no longer are they openly embracing idolatry, but neither are they embracing Jehovah and his will. And sadly, that condition is worse off than before because it makes them even more susceptible than ever to evil. This is, a, in my opinion, this is a parable of rebuke against the religious leaders that are standing as the represent, representatives of the nation of Israel. And Jesus calls him out for that. Now the events continue, verse 46. It says, while he was still speaking to his people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who's my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and my mother. Now that seems like an odd response. Your family has just stopped by to say hello. You haven't been you know, around the community, the village that they live in for a little while. The least you could do is to sort of acknowledge them, maybe take a minute to catch up with them. And yet Jesus is basically saying, I don't know who those people are. You know, who's my mother? These are my mothers and my brothers and, and so on. Now there's a challenge for us in understanding this passage. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's not being rude to his mom and to his brothers. We have more information from some of the parallel passages that are found in the other gospels. From this passage, it just simply seems that they come and they want to connect with their son and with their brother, and Jesus kind of gives them a tough response. But we learn from Mark chapter 3. We also learn from John chapter 7. This is what we learn from Mark 3. It says, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Okay? John chapter 7 tells us that despite growing up with the Lord there in the home, his own brothers didn't believe that he was the Lord. It says in John 7, 5, not even his own brothers believed in him. And, and certainly, is it hard to blame them? Like, would you really think your big brother is God's Messiah? You probably necessarily wouldn't. You think he's a good guy, certainly, but, you know, that's going pretty far. But his brothers didn't believe in that as well. Now they're coming not to say hi, but really to stop him from ministering. It's as if they came and said, look, you're getting yourself into trouble. You're making mom worried. You're making a whole lot of enemies of some really powerful people. You need to come home now. That's why Jesus says, who are my mother? Who are my brothers? He's not going to stop what he was sent to do. He's not dissuaded, so he replies to the messenger. He says, but he replied to the man who told him, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands, he said, these are my mother, my brothers. 
Let me read it exactly. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, that is my brother and my sister and my mother. And in many ways, Jesus' dismissal here of his earthly family is similar to the way of his dismissal of the nation of Israel. As he has been bringing the gospel almost exclusively to the nation of Israel. And on the side, kind of reaching and touching a Gentile here and there. From chapter 13 on now in the book of Matthew, you will see increasingly Jesus ministering to a Gentile people. Because the nation of Israel, particularly as they are represented by their leaders, has rejected his ministry. And so Jesus said, who is my brother? Who are my mothers? Who's my family, if you will? It's those that do the will of the Father. And he moves on. And the gospel is going to go forth in great numbers to the Gentiles. A Jew can still get saved, certainly so. But the vast majority have rejected the Lord, God's Messiah. Now, I want to make two other quick points on, on these verses here as we finish this chapter. The first has to do with the position of Mary. The second has to do with the fact that Jesus had brothers. The Catholic Church, and I think at one point I, I sort of did a little survey here, about half of us that are sitting in this room grew up in a Catholic Church situation. And the Catholic Church has perpetuated two erroneous ideas. And so it's important, I think, for us to consider it because many of us grew up with it and we would just think it's acceptable. The first is this, that Mary occupies a unique place in the church, a place of preeminence of some form. There are some, not all Catholics, but there are some in the Roman Catholic Church that actually promote what's called the doctrine of the co-redemptrix, which teaches that Mary somehow plays a part with Jesus, her son, in the redemption process, that the two are somehow involved in this process together, not according to the scripture. The Bible doesn't teach that. Mary was privileged in that she was found worthy to bear the Messiah and invest her life into raising him, but that is where the privilege ends. Mary is a sinner just like you and I and needed to come to her son for salvation just as every one of us has to do as well. And so the first point that I bring up to you has to do with this idea of the position of Mary. And I, can I just throw a PS in there? Don't pray to Mary. I know a lot of folks, they grew up praying the Hail Mary or whatever it may be. Don't pray to Mary. Don't pray to the saints. Don't pray to anyone but God the Father through his son Jesus Christ in the leading and power of the Holy Spirit. All right, so tuck those things away. Wow, some of you think strongly about that. And you should. You should. So if you didn't say amen, <laughs> you know, I'm just kidding. Now, the second error of the Catholic Church that has been promulgated is that Mary remained a perpetual virgin, and thus Jesus had no brothers and sisters. Actually, the Catholic Church will take this passage where it talks about brothers and sisters and say, well, that could mean cousins. These are cousins that came. But that's not really, that's not what it means. The passage clearly teaches, there's not other examples of it being cousins. The passage clearly teaches otherwise. Jesus had as many as four brothers and at least two sisters. In fact, last week when Dan was teaching from the book of James, he pointed out that James was, the author of that book of James, was Jesus' half-brother. Same mom, different dad, if you want to think of it that way. We know that the book of Jude was written by one of his brothers. And so uh, Mary did not remain a perpetual virgin. I, I, I find this interesting because it is the way the doctrinal error forms, because the Catholic Church had, and, and at one point, there only was the Catholic Church. All right, So we're blaming the Catholic Church here, but for 
1,500 years, there just was the one church. And so that's why they get blamed for it, because they were the only one at the time. But anyway, the, the way it works is you establish a doctrine which isn't necessarily biblical. And in that case, the doctrine was that sex is a necessary evil, not necessarily something God has given us, you know, to enjoy in the confines of marriage and so on, but it's a necessary evil. You know, just got to do it, you know, bite the bullet and do it or something like that or whatever. And so since sex is this necessary evil, obviously, Holy Mary couldn't have had sex. And so now we go, okay, now what are we going to talk about? And so now you got to go back and kind of change other doctrines to support these doctrines up here. Let the Bible teach you what you should believe, not some other ideas that are out there and make the Bible say it. And so I'm, I'm getting off here. But anyway, you have James, you have Jude writing these two books of the Bible. Now, I think that's very encouraging news as an aside. Because just a few moments ago, I shared with you from John, I think it was chapter 7, verse 5, it said, even his own brothers did not believe. I share with you from Mark chapter 3 that his brothers came to take him home because they thought he was a crazy man. And here now, 10 years later, 20 years later, these guys are believers that are writing books of our Bible that we still meditate on these days and seek to, to walk and grow in our faith. So perhaps you know someone that thinks you're crazy or thinks you're a bit askew because of your faith. I would just suggest to you, this is an example to us. There's still hope for those people. Just continue to be faithful to minister to them. Continue to be faithful and true to what you know the Lord is directing and leading. And let, the God, do a, let God do a transforming work in their lives. Amen? Well, that brings us to the end of chapter 12. And as I quickly mentioned, this is a... This stopping point, before we move on into chapter 13, it marks a significant turning point in the ministry of Christ as the opposition from the Jewish leaders becomes more forceful and more violent, ultimately culminating in his earthly death. It's also going to mark an increased openness Jesus has to ministering to those outside of the nation of Israel, the Gentile people. And so the next time we come together again, we'll take some time to begin looking at those things. Okay, amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. And, and Lord, it is, uh, I, I think I say this every week, but it's just such a blessing to be able to gather and sit under your word and, and allow it to teach us. Lord, it, it's like waters of refreshment just sort of washing over us. It's, it's as if a firm foundation is being laid once again under our feet upon which we can stand and upon which we could walk and and so, Lord, it is just so good for us to gather together as a body of believers ready to hear from you and to receive what it is you have for us. And so, Lord, we just give you thanks for that today. And so, Lord, we pray that the things that we've considered this morning, Lord, would strengthen our legs for the journey that we have ahead of us this week or until we gather together again. Lord, that you would direct our steps, that you'd be ministering to our hearts, that you would reveal areas and use even this morning's teaching to reveal areas of our lives that perhaps are drifting away from you, calluses are forming, hardness of heart is developing, Lord, and that we would just lay that down afresh over you, that you might minister to us in a new way today. So, Lord, we love you. We love gathering together, and we thank you for the privilege, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. 
If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.